You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning. If you've got your Bible, turn me to Luke chapter 10 and find verse 25. Luke 10, 25. It is a very well-known story Jesus tells about the Good Samaritan. And so as you're turning there, I'll introduce myself. My name's Jamin Roller. I'm one of the pastors here at Citizens Church. If you are visiting, if you're uh, new, it's maybe your first, second time to be here. Uh, Just so thrilled that you chose to worship with us this morning. And and so just to kind of give you an idea of where we are right now, we're three weeks into the month of January. And the month of January uh, is a time historically, uh, and right now where our church is, is really asking a question And we framed it a couple of different ways, but really we're just asking a question of what does it look like uh, for the church to be engaged in the world right now? Uh, And that has really uh, led us to thinking through just a certain convictions that we have, right? And so just to be very specific, uh, one of the convictions is that we be people who share the gospel with those around us and around the world. And that was the first Sunday. We looked at Isaiah chapter six. It means last Sunday, we talked about how we are a people uh, that care about all life and contend for all life, beginning in the womb and throughout all of life, that lives matter and people are worth contending for. Uh, Next week, we will uh, talk about our church's partnership that we now have with a ministry called IJM. IJM is a ministry that works to uh, literally rescue people out of slavery uh, around the world. And so we'll talk about God's heart for justice and our partnership with that organization. And then just to kind of let you know where we go for the rest of, of at least the spring, the first Sunday in February, our very own Michael Bleeker is going to be preaching on worship. And I, I think he's just going to sing the whole sermon is what he told me, like a Disney movie. So, um, and then the second Sunday in February, we are going to be back in the book of Colossians and we will be in Colossians until we finish, which looking like May of 2020. <laughs> 2020 we'll be done. So this morning, here's what we're doing. We are, in light of the question we're asking, what does it mean to engage in the world as the church? Uh, we are looking at how the gospel brings peace and harmony, not just between us and God, but it brings peace and harmony between people groups. Namely, it brings peace and harmony uh, between people of different color and ethnicity and class, whereas human history is filled with, the bent of the human heart is to divide over our differences. The power of the gospel takes people who are very different in lots of different ways and brings them together with a common love and a common uh, affection for Jesus. And so let me just fight for some clarity here at the very beginning by starting with an illustration that you've heard from me before, but it's very meaningful to me as I think through this as a church. When I was in Bible college, one of my professors was teaching, and we were talking about this question. What does it look like for the church to be faithful right where we are? Meaning where we are in redemptive history. So if you remember Advent, the whole month of December, what we said is we live in between two great events of Jesus. We live in between Jesus's first coming and his second coming. And so in Jesus's first coming, he died. He lived a perfect life. He died. He rose again, defeated sin and death. He ascended to the right hand of the father. And then his second coming is when he returns and he brings a perfect world with him, a world that in a lot of ways has already started, but mostly we are waiting for him to bring. And so what does it look like for the church to to be faithful and to live faithfully in this time? that God has entrusted to us. 
And here's how he answered that question. He answered it with an illustration. And if you know me, you know that I think in story. Things don't make sense to me unless they're illustrated. That's why I use a lot of illustrations because that's naturally how I learn. But I remembered this from 15 years ago or so. He said this, in this time that we live in between Jesus's first coming, waiting for Jesus to bring his perfect world in the future, we are the movie trailer, meaning the world that Jesus is bringing is like a movie that's coming in the church is the trailer that previews what that world will look like. So it's a very basic illustration. Uh, I like it because everyone knows what it's like to watch the trailer of a movie, right? And everyone knows maybe there's a movie you're waiting to come out this summer and, and what you're excited about is you're excited about the trailer that came out ahead of the movie because it built anticipation for the movie. And that's the purpose of the movie trailer, that it goes out ahead of the movie to represent the movie and capture somewhat of the quality of the movie and the tone of the movie and the story of the movie. But ultimately, it's to make you want to watch the movie once it releases. It builds anticipation for it. So the way it works in my home, uh, Carrie and I have very different criteria for what makes a movie good. I don't know if that's your world at all, but, but Carrie, she's my wife. We have very different criteria for what makes a movie good. Uh, I, I like a lot of different kinds of movies. What I want is I want uh, the movie to just be done well, but it doesn't really matter the genre. Like I really love a movie that's going to make me think like deeply about the problems in the world. Uh, I love a movie that's going to make me think deeply about the problems of humanity, maybe. Carrie uh, has great taste, but mostly... If she's watching a movie, she just wants to have a pleasant experience, right? She just wants at the end of the movie to feel happy because of what happened in the movie. Like she doesn't need a movie to help her think deeply about the problems of the world. She's home all day with three young children. She knows all about the problems of the world, right? She has a front row seat to how broken the world is and the violence and selfishness and biting and all of that. So um, if I wanna watch a movie, or if I've seen a movie that I think Carrie would really enjoy, but it's maybe a little bit outside of her taste, I'll say, will you at least watch what? The trailer. Will you at least watch the preview? And in that moment, what I'm hoping is, I'm hoping that the movie that I wanna watch, I'm hoping that the trailer does its job. I'm hoping that the trailer represents something of the emotion of the movie or the quality of the movie so that at the end of it, Carrie's like, okay, we can watch it. Jesus is going to one day return. And he's bringing with him a beautiful world, the age to come. And we get certain, if you, if you will, we get certain scenes from that movie that's coming. Like in Revelation 21, it says that there are no more tears and no more pain and no more death and no more sin. It's only obedience and only righteousness and it's worship forever and it's God's people enjoying God's presence. And that world is coming. The church has been sent out ahead of that world as the preview. Go out ahead of it and live lives in ways that represent the world that Jesus is bringing because part of that world has already come to you in your salvation and redemption and freedom and forgiveness. And so live in such a way that points forward to the world that's coming, not perfectly, obviously, but faithfully. When Jesus teaches you and I to pray, he says, pray this, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, we're praying, God, would your future world come now and would it come through me as a beautiful picture of what is to come? And so here's what that's gonna do for Christians, if that's true, and it is. What that's gonna do for Christians is it's going to propel us into the brokenness of this current world. 
in the world that is passing away, where we see the parts of that world that are still broken by sin, we as Christians do not shrink back from the brokenness, but we want to enter in thoughtfully with truth and grace and say, where can we, in the midst of the brokenness, be a preview of the beautiful world that is coming? And that question is a question that every single generation of Christians has had to answer throughout history. Every single time since the, Jesus walked out of the tomb, every group of believers, every individual church is giving an answer to the question, are we going to together be a faithful preview and picture? Are we going to give and to offer in the world glimpses of what is to come? And you probably know this. There are a lot of places in Christian history where the church has failed to do that. Lots of places where the church was called to be the preview of the beautiful world and instead was just a broken picture back to the broken world that just proliferated more brokenness. And there are plenty of times in Christian history where Christians were faithful to do this. Just to give you one practical example, it's why when you look at hospitals around here, many of those are tied to some sort of Christian denomination. Many of them have Christian names. You know why? Because at some point in history, a group of Christians got together and said, you know, there's so much sickness and so much illness and so many people hurting, and there is coming a day where illness has gone for good and coming a day where sickness has gone for good. Let's start a clinic. Let's start a hospital. Let's staff it, and let's help people who are hurting. Not because we believe that we in and ourselves can make sickness go away forever, but we believe that we can love and show compassion and grace in such a way that is a sign that one day everything that's painful and everything that's broken is made right by Jesus. So that's why we're doing what we're doing the month of January. Citizens Church, it's our time in history to answer the question for ourselves. What will it look like for us to be a faithful picture of the beautiful world that is coming to the world that is passing away? So it's why next Sunday we'll talk about justice, we'll talk about IJM, and we'll talk about how we're partnering with that, invite you to partner with us in partnering with them because there is coming a day where slavery just doesn't exist anymore. And so we want to be a part of the work of setting captives free now because that beautiful world is coming and it will one day be a reality. It's why last week we talked about the dignity of human life because there's a day coming where there's no more abortion and there's no more violence and there's no more really young, confused moms who are pregnant, who are looking around seeing who's going to help me and finding no one who will come and help. There's coming a day where that's gone for good. And so we want to be a preview of that. And, And can I tell you something? Uh, last Sunday, you were. You just were. I'm so, I'm so proud of what God did among us in, in the way that you got bottles to, to fill up and you're bringing them back, uh, in the way that you partnered with the organizations we had, in the way that for many of you, you, you talked to God about your past for the first time and you never had before. You talked to someone else about your past for the first time and you never had before. And then specifically, I had made known to us a need that a young woman had who is being helped by two of our families. And, and after service, you gave money, and all week long, you dropped off furniture, and you offered to help, and the young woman who is trying to start a new life for herself moved into her apartment yesterday, fully furnished, stocked with groceries. And she said this to one of our families involved. She said, you and everyone else have made me feel so loved, and that's all I've ever wanted. How beautiful is that? It doesn't mean all the need's gone. 
I'm not naive. There's a long road ahead that people who love her will be present with her for. But a beautiful preview of God's beautiful world was on display to her from us. And it's just such a joy to be a part of displaying the beauty of God and the beauty of the world that Jesus is bringing right now. So here's what we need to know about the world that is coming that is going to shape how we talk the next 20, 25 minutes. The world that is coming is free of pain and it's free of sin and it's free of death. Do you know what it's filled with? Color. It's filled with color. It's filled with people of all different races and ethnicities and background. That's been God's heart from the very beginning. In Genesis 12, he tells Abraham, in you all the nations of the world will be blessed. We get a scene from the world that is coming, a a clip from the movie, if you will. It's in Revelation 7. It says this, after this I looked. This is the world Jesus is bringing. This is a scene from that world. And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Do you hear it? Do you hear this? Every ethnicity, it's this beautiful multicultural worship service that one day will happen in the future. And look, I don't know if you're like me, but when I read in the Bible, my default, when I see something like tribes and tongues, my default is to think of only those that were around the time of the Bible. So I'm thinking like Jew and Gentile and Greek and in Roman. So here's what it's saying to bring it into our time. It's German and American and Korean, and Mexican, and Peruvian, and Chinese, and Nigerian, and Rwandan, and Texan. I I think we get our own category probably, (laughs) because God loves us. When you read this, though, what I hope you hear, I say that to say this, I hope what you hear is whatever ethnicity you are is represented in the perfect world that Jesus is bringing. All different kinds of colors, Black, white, brown, all different languages. Here's what's what's just so compelling. It's all different languages saying the same thing in different words, right? So it says every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And can you imagine how beautiful it will be? What they're saying is salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. But it's being shouted in Hebrew and in Spanish and in Mandarin and in Korean and in Swahili. It will. This moment when it happens in the future and it will happen because God's word is true. It will be the most diverse multicultural gathering of people in human history, which will be remarkable. What's even more remarkable than how diverse it will be is it will be completely unified in love and in worship. We'll all agree. We will all lift our voices and agree. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Like this is the kind of thing that you could take, you could take the most gifted communicators and the most gifted leaders and the most brilliant minds in 2020 and say, recreate this right now. Make this happen in 2020. And it just, it just would be impossible to manufacture. But with God, it's not impossible. With God, this multicultural gathering filled with color will happen. And here's what we need to know. It is birthed out of a truth about God that God expects to be true about us. And here's the truth. God shows no partiality. 
Paul says that in Romans chapter two. Peter says that in Acts, when salvation comes to the Gentiles, God shows no partiality. It's a very unique phrase. It is not used in the Old Testament, it's just used in the New Testament, but it comes from a Hebrew idiom. And here's how it's interpreted. God is not a lifter of faces. Here's the idea. In the ancient Near East, if you wanted to uh, ask for help from a king, you would walk into the king's palace. Imagine this is massive palace, and then there's this throne. He's not on the throne. He's off in his quarters, and you would go, and you would walk into his palace, and then you would fall down at your, uh, on your face. You would literally have your face in the ground, and whatever your need was, you would make known. You would, you, would just, you would just announce your case. I need help, or I was wronged, or I need money. And then the king would come in and would see his subject face down and would hear the case, hear the need, hear how they were wronged, hear the kind of mercy they're asking for. And then before rendering judgment, the king would walk to the person and he would lift up their face. You know why? To see what they look like. To see what color to see what ethnicity, because the whether or not the king showed mercy depended on how much of himself he saw in the person. Whether or not the king showed mercy, whether or not the king offered a a gratuitous judgment was dependent on what the person looked like, their external appearance, their background, their ethnicity. And so knowing that, what Paul and Peter and James say about our God is God is not the kind of king that lifts faces. Praise God. He's not the kind of king that he does not show love or mercy based on color or class. No, God uh, loves and saves and redeems through Jesus people of all races and all languages and all ethnicity. He shows no partiality. And because he shows no partiality, what's reflected in the world that Jesus is bringing, it's going to culminate in millions of voices in thousands of languages declaring together salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's the movie. That's the future world. We are the preview. We are the picture now to the world of what that world will look like. What is on display in Jesus' world is the love of God that does not lift faces. What doesn't exist is prejudice, racism, elitism, impartiality. And you know this. The people of God have been on the wrong side of this one far too often. It wasn't too long ago in this country that white preachers would stand on stages like this in church services like this and use the word of God to justify enslavement and oppression. It wasn't too long ago, a little over 50 years ago, that uh, white preachers would stand in churches like this and use the Bible to justify discrimination of people of color and would allow, would disallow people of color worshiping in their churches. And I just don't know how you miss the contradiction. You have to ignore entire pages of the Bible to say to someone, you can worship with me in heaven because we have the same Savior, but you can't worship with me on earth because we have different color skin. That's a, that is a broken picture. That's a broken picture. That is just a picture of the brokenness of the world playing back to the broken world, and it breaks the heart of God. And the people of God have a history of doing this faithfully. The people of God have a history of being the ones who, knowing the world that is coming, knowing the God who shows no partiality, have stood right in the middle of fights. It's Corey Tinboom and Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Nazi Germany contending for the lives 
of those who weren't German. It's Martin Luther King, who we celebrate tomorrow in the middle of the civil rights movement. They led out in their time, the years that God entrusted to them, they led out in the fight to be a beautiful picture of the world that is coming in the God who shows no partiality. And so we are at our own point in human history. It's our time, Citizens Church. And so uh, we are not in the middle of a Holocaust. We're not in the middle of a civil rights movement. I hope you'll agree with this, though. Uh, We do find ourselves in the middle of a culture that is toxically divided. Toxically divided. And a lot of that division falls along the lines of race and class and tribe. Why we are in Luke 10 this morning is because I don't know of a better place in Scripture where we hear the heart of God, where we hear the heart of partiality confronted, and we hear the heart of God for all people just put on display from the mouth of Jesus. Because where this starts for us as a church, where this starts for us as individuals to be the preview, to be the picture of the beautiful multicultural world that Jesus is bringing, it's going to start in our hearts being a people who love without partiality. Verse 25, chapter 10. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Okay, pause with me for a minute. Uh, This lawyer comes up, he's a Jewish lawyer, he has the Old Testament memorized, he is of the Jewish elite, of the high class, he comes to Jesus and he asks the most important question there is, how do I know I get to spend eternity with God? Another way to ask the question is, how do I know I'm going to live in the world to come? How do I know I'm going to be a part of the beautiful world that, that God is going to bring? And so Jesus hears the question and puts it back on him. You know the law, you've got it memorized, you tell me how you read it. And he says, love God and love neighbor. And Jesus says, you got it. And it's almost as if the lawyer turns around to walk away and then just gets caught by a thought and turns around and says, hey, Jesus, just to make sure I'm following you, who is my neighbor? Now, if the story is familiar to you, it may not strike you this way. But if you think about the heart behind the question, if he's saying, who is my neighbor? What he's really asking is, who do I have to love and who do I not have to love? So in his mind, what he reveals is there are categories. People fall into categories. The group of people that I have to love and the group of people that I do not have to love. And that was influenced by his culture. It was a culture that had already answered that question and had answered that question around race and around ethnicity and around class and around religion. One rabbi wrote this around the same time of Jesus. You can't kill a Gentile, but if you see one dying, you don't have to help. In my house, we have an almost two-year-old. Her name's Ayla. She's wonderful. Uh, And we also have a dog. His name's Rowdy, and he's a dog. Um, He's huge. He's big enough to where when Ayla eats her uh, breakfast or her lunch or her dinner in her tray, Rowdy is big enough. His name's Rowdy. He's big enough to um, go and eat food off of her tray. And he kept doing that, and it would upset her and her mother. And so um, I taught Ayla. When Rowdy comes and tries to do that, here's what you do. You point your finger at him, and you get serious. You get a serious face, deep voice, and you go, no, dog. So that's what she does. 
Rowdy comes to try to eat her cereal or whatever, and she'll get this serious face, and she'll point her finger, and she'll go, no, dog. And then he just ducks his head and walks away. And then she just smiles like, I'm in charge, you know, and she knows it. Thursday morning, she is getting into the little coffee bar that we have at our house because she gets into everything. And she gets these coffee beans that I just bought and she opens them up and she's about to turn them over and spill them all over the floor. And I'm like, Ayla, no, that's craft coffee. Please don't, right? And so I go up to her and I say, hey, Ayla, give those to me. She points her finger. (laughs) And her face gets serious. And she goes, no, dog. (laughs) And I didn't know what to do. So I just ducked my head and walked away. (laughs) And it's funny. And I'll tell it a lot because it's funny. Um, But it's not funny if she's 12 because you don't call people dogs. If I stand up here 20 years from now and I tell you a story about my 22-year-old daughter who calls me a dog, that means everything I'm afraid of has come true, right? Because you don't call people, like literally, to call someone an animal is derogatory. It is literally dehumanizing. And yet, dog was a common way that guys like this lawyer would talk about people of different races and religions in the first century. And in the first century, dogs weren't pets. They were pests, more like rats. And so when he asks Jesus, who is my neighbor, Underneath it is a heart that what he's really asking is, I want to make sure that I can still withhold love from the dogs. I want to make sure that you agree with me, Jesus, that I only have to love those who I believe are deserving of love. And because Jesus knows the heart, he knows the heart behind the question, and he tells a story that's going to go after the prejudice in this man's heart. It's almost as if there are embers of prejudice and racism that exist in the man, and Jesus tells a story that he knows will fan those embers into a fire so that Jesus can extinguish it or else it will consume him. Here's the story. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to that place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan As he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Jesus then has a question of his own for the man. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Jesus answers his question, not by answering his question, but inviting him to a story. And if you think about being, if we just imagine what it feels like to be the lawyer right now, this Jewish lawyer who's asking Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus doesn't even answer the question. He just starts telling a story. You still have your question. And so in asking your question, your question's gonna linger over the story. And so if you can imagine with me being the lawyer and Jesus starts telling the story, as soon as he starts talking about the different characters in the story, your question's gonna linger over the character and you're going to ask about that character. Is this person my neighbor? And so it would have gone like this. Jesus says, there was a man 
who is beaten and robbed and stripped naked and left half dead. And so the question lingers over the man. Is he my neighbor? Well, the lawyer doesn't know. Because in that culture, it was a melting pot of cultures. And the way that you knew where someone fit in society, the way you knew what ethnicity they were, the way you knew uh, you know, what they believed was based on their clothes and what they looked like and what they said. This man is naked, he's beaten, he's unconscious, he can't speak, and he's left dead. His face is completely disfigured. So his question lingers over. All he knows is that it's a man. But he doesn't know where he's from. He doesn't know what he believes. He doesn't know, do we have anything in common? Are there things that are similar about us? And then, a priest. And the question lingers over the priest. And at this point, the lawyer's like, oh, yeah, that's my neighbor. Jewish, looks like me, has the same passages memorized as me. And yet the man enters in and exits out of the story. Then a Levite. And the question lingers over the Levite. Is this my neighbor? Yes, surely this is my neighbor. He's a Levite. He's of the highest order. He's from this, you know, the same heritage as me. And we believe the same things. Probably went to, you know, Jerusalem Junior College together. And I see so much of myself in him. And that's lingering over. And yet he enters in and exits out of the story. So surely at this point, he's confused. Jesus, I asked you, who is my neighbor? And all I know is there's a guy that I don't know if he's my neighbor or not because there's no markers over his life. And then these two guys who I know are my neighbor just entered in and walked on by. Then a Samaritan. And the question lingers over the Samaritan. And immediately what would have happened in the mind and heart of the lawyer is not my neighbor. Don't have to love. 700 years before Jesus tells this story, the Assyrians marched into Israel and just destroyed everything and almost everybody. They took most of the people of Israel back into captivity, left only a few behind. And then Assyrians who had just defeated Israel moved into the land of Israel. Some of the Jews that were left behind chose to marry the Assyrian oppressors. Their children gave birth to a race of people called Samaritans. In the mind of a Jew, what that meant is a Samaritan was a combination between a Jewish sellout and a Jewish enemy. And so they were, they were these walking representations of everything that the Jewish people hated. In fact, it was written about Samaritans in the first century is that they are worse than dogs. And so he hears this, a Samaritan, and then what happens is, is if he was confused, his confusion turns to anger. Jesus, just answer the question, who is my neighbor? And then what does Jesus do? The Samaritan's the hero. He makes the Samaritan the teacher. He spends four verses describing what he does to help the man. He stops, he tears his clothes to bind the man's wounds. He loads him up on his own animal, which means he walked the rest of the trip. He takes him to get help, pays for the help, and then makes plans to come back to make sure he was taken care of and he will cover whatever expense was already not covered because he wants to make sure the man is okay. End scene. Jesus turns to the lawyer and has a question of his own, who was a neighbor? Do you hear it? The whole story is Jesus saying to the man, you're asking the wrong question. You have the wrong categories. Look, it is hard to know how to communicate how this must have landed on the man because it's hard to make a cultural comparison now that isn't like there's such a large risk of it being offensive or being misunderstood. So just imagine asking Jesus, Jesus, who should I love? 
And then imagine uh, someone who is the opposite of you, ethnically, religiously, culturally, someone who is hard for you to love because you are different in every way that matters to you. And then imagine Jesus not only saying love that person, but then he tells a story where that person models what love looks like. To make what point? To make the point that those who follow Jesus do not ask what people do I love and what people do I not love. Those who follow Jesus are people of love who love all people without partiality. They don't lift faces. Listen, friends, the bend of the human heart is to love with partiality. The bend of the human heart is to lift faces that I look around and I estimate other people's value based on how much of myself I see in them. And so where I encounter differences between me and between them, it diminishes their value. And so if they're a different color, they're less valuable. If they're a different ethnicity or background, they're less valuable. If they have different struggles, then they're less valuable. If they make different amount of money, then they're less valuable. If they're a different class, they're less valuable. And at the end of it, they're down here and I'm up here and I feel justified in withholding love that I don't believe they deserve. That is a broken picture of a broken world that's just playing back into the brokenness. That's not a preview of the world that God's bringing. It's not a preview of the love of God and the beauty that we see displayed in Jesus. It's not how God loves. He shows no partiality. And in all of the differences, if that's how we live our life, in all of the differences between us and those not like us, we may no longer see our image, but God always sees his, always sees his. It's the point behind Jesus telling the story that in every man and every woman of all kinds and colors and classes, Jesus would have us love the way that God loves without partiality. And it doesn't stop there. It isn't simply love people, especially those who are not like you, but that love is seen most clearly when we enter into other people's lives and we make the problems in their life our problem. Like what's condemned in the story? What is championed is the act of the Samaritan. What's condemned is the action of the priest and the Levite. And what did they do wrong? Well, what they did wrong was they uh, beat the guy up and took all his stuff. Oh, that wasn't them. They didn't do that to him. Well, what they did wrong is as they passed by, they cursed him and called him all these names. No, they didn't do that. Look, they are not responsible for the man's condition. They're not. They didn't do that to him. What they're guilty of is not stopping. What they're guilty of is just walking by. Look, they may not be responsible for his condition. This is astounding. But Jesus says they are responsible for his cure. And in not entering into his problem with him, in not making his problem their problem, they failed to love. This is what Martin Luther King was getting at. One of the last sermons he preached before he was killed was the Good Samaritan, and he said this, the priest and the Levite saw the man and asked, if I help this man, what will happen to me? Then the Samaritan comes by and reverses the question, if I do not help this man, what will happen to him? And the love that puts the beautiful world on display, the world of Jesus that's coming, the love that, 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 that gives a glimpse of the glory of God's world, is the love that shows no partiality and that enters into the messes of other people's life and says, this mess is our mess. I'm not responsible for it, but I'm gonna be with you in it. Man, I don't know. That seems not fair. Seems pretty unfair, actually. Well, it's not about fair. 
It's about loving the way that you and I have been loved by God. And friends, Jesus, if you're a Christian, Jesus was a neighbor to you. Jesus loved you like this. I could ask it this way. Can you imagine if your only hope for salvation was that you and Jesus had a lot in common? Can you imagine that? Imagine if your only hope for salvation is that you and Jesus share a lot of things in common. And so you come in, if he's the king, you come in into this beautiful palace and you fall before a throne and he's not on the, phone, on the throne, but you're face down, right, in front of him and, and you make your case known and you're like, Jesus, man, there's pride in my heart and I've sinned and I am broken and my life is not what it should be. It's not what God expects of me. Jesus, please help. And what if uh, Jesus comes in and Jesus, before extending mercy, before extending love, what if he lifts your face to see if you are like him? You're not. I'm not. Very different. Very different background, very different ethnicity, uh, very, very different look, right? And beyond that, very different lives, very different people. He's perfect. He's guilty of none of the things that you've asked him to help with, not responsible for any of it. And friends, if he loves with partiality, you have no hope. If he loves with partiality, I have no hope. But he doesn't lift your face. He gives his life to give you life, to change your heart. He is the one who doesn't pass by you on the road, but he sees you and he stops and he has mercy and compassion, even though you're different from him in so many ways. He carries a cross so that he can carry you out of your sin and out of death and out of your mess. He makes your problem his problem and loves you and me without partiality and to be loved by him like that is to be at the same time commissioned by him to go and do likewise, to love others in the same way. I say all that because the starting place for us as a church in the time that God's given us at the moment and culture where we are, the starting place to being that faithful, beautiful picture is knowing that you have been loved like this and knowing that Jesus expects of you and of me that this love comes out of our life, especially to those who are different than us, especially to those who are different than us. And so perhaps it means asking the question, where has God placed me in close proximity to those who are not like me, don't look like me, very different from me, and placed me there with an opportunity to put a distinct love on display? And then I do want to say this. Why it's so important for a number of reasons is because if we are a people who love like that, the Revelation 7 picture will begin to be reflected in our gatherings. And how beautiful will that be? Like, let me say it very specifically. Our desire here at Citizens is to be a multicultural church. And we are, in some ways. Uh, but our desire is to grow in becoming, to, to gather together at 1115, and for 1115, as we grow older and older, to be more and more a preview of Revelation 7. Now look, we don't become a multicultural church uh, by saying that the mission of the church is to be a multicultural church. It's not. 
The mission of the church is loving God and loving others. The mission of the church is, uh, is, is to have and hold and be faithful to the gospel. But where, hear me friends, where the gospel is faithfully preached and lived out in multicultural areas, it always does the work that it always does. And it cultivates oneness among people who are very different but have the same need and have the same savior. Pete Scazzaro, he planted a church in Queens uh, several decades ago. And I heard him in an interview this week. Uh, his church that he planted is called by some the most multicultural church in America. And he said this, We did not become multicultural by being all about being multicultural. We became multicultural by being all about Jesus as a church surrounded by tons of different cultures. We are that church, meaning we are a church that is surrounded by tons of different cultures. If you've been paying attention, you'll see this. The world has descended on Collin County. It has. The world, and it has been for some time. And so one of the measures of faithfulness for us, are we being a people who is growing in our love that matches the way we've been loved? Are we a people who loves without lifting faces, loves without partiality? And if we are, that will be reflected by us growing more diverse which becomes for us a measure of faithfulness to the call that God's put on our lives. And then what that means is that means that we become a place that is increasingly sensitive to what it means to honor that diversity, to honor being a multicultural church, meaning what we're already asking about ourselves, what we as leaders are already asking about this church is uh, what does it mean for us to have more than just one kind of ethnicity reflected on our staff? We have to have more than just one kind of ethnicity reflected in our elder room among our elders because representation is important. More than that, because we need more than just my voice from my background and my cultural upbringing. Like, here's what I know right now. I know that because all I know is what I know that's so tied to being uh, who I am and being raised who I am and being the ethnicity I am, I know that it means even in having this conversation, even in preaching this sermon, I probably miss some things and probably miss some of you and probably miss some of, the, some of the pain points or said something that you would have said differently. And here's the thing, I get that. And so what I want you to know in that is that we are praying for God to uh, equip us, guide us, give us discernment. We are inviting voices from within our church to help us do this well because we, see, we desire to see this continue to be reflected here. I just don't know. I just don't know what aspect of Christianity is as compelling as the fact that the gospel has the power to bring unity among people that have no external reason to love one another and to be together other than they have the same love for a same Savior and the same God. And so look, it's just a compelling reality about Christianity. If you know the story of Christianity, it started with a Palestinian Jew in the first century. And then it spread from this Palestinian Jew to a couple of dozen Jews in Jerusalem and then spread to some Gentiles around Jerusalem and Galilee. And from there, it spread throughout the Middle East. And then from there, it went into North Africa. And then from there, it went all over Rome into modern-day Europe. And then from there, into parts of Asia, eventually over to the Americas. And there's been pockets of revival in China and pockets of revival in Korea. It's currently exploding in Africa. 
Christianity is the majority of few places. It is, it's a minority almost everywhere. It's the most multicultural religious movement in human history because it doesn't go in and change clothes and it doesn't go in and change color and it doesn't go in and change languages or require followers to become more Western or more Eastern or more white or more something else. It goes in and changes arts and requires followers to become more human as they conform into the image of Jesus. And what's culminating is all of that story is culminating to this beautiful world where every culture and color and life that the gospel of Jesus has touched and changed comes together and a million people in a thousand languages lift one voice and say salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. May we be a people who love those around us without partiality the way we've been loved by God. And please, God, would you allow us the fruit of that love to be that we get a small glimpse every time we gather of what we'll do for all of eternity. God, we love you. We love you. We thank you for your mercy and your grace. I thank you, God, that you did not show partiality. I thank you, God, that you didn't lift my face to search for similarities before you saved me. I pray, God, that for every Christian in the room, you saw one far from you, very different from you, and you bridged the gap, and you descended in love, and you're making us more and more like you. I thank you, God that you love like that. Would you, God, convict in my own heart where that bent towards face lifting exists? Lord, where you convict in my heart where that bent towards prejudice, elitism exists, God? Would you do the same for all of us? And then, God, I just pray, and just not knowing all the stories in the room, I just pray that you would continue to cultivate in us, that you'd continue to make us a place that gets to try and be a small reflection of what we will experience for all of eternity. And if what that means is that means, Lord, that you know, one who came in, a man or a woman who came in this morning and sat through the last hour and a half and looked around and, and didn't see many people who looked like them and saw a lot of people who didn't look like them, I just pray that they would be affirmed in this moment that being here, that, Lord, we would, that with them we are more beautiful than we would be without them. I thank you for that, God. I ask that you would lead us and guide us to be a people that are faithful to the time that you've given us and the vocation that you've given us and the mission that you've put in front of us to reflect your love to the world. Amen.